This Tridio production is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and made possible by you, our listener. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit tridio.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 44. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the third Doctor Regeneration story, Planet of the Spiders. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, uh, Planet of the Spiders, let's, let's listen to the sound of the trailer, the DVD trailer. Excellent. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I love that trailer. Uh, so the this uh, episode, this uh, series of episodes, uh, was six episodes, aired between May and June of 1974. It was the regeneration of the third Doctor, John Pertwee. Uh, it was the, overall, it was the 11th season of Doctor Who, but the fifth uh, featuring the third Doctor. Um, so uh, I have something I, uh, I wanted to read. This, this appeared in the Radio Times. Uh, which is the, uh, the, 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 what was it, the BBC uh, newspaper yeah, magazine? Basically, that advertised what was coming up on TV and had articles. It's kind of like their TV guide. Okay, okay. Yeah, and it still exists. You can go to it on the web, on, uh, on the web and, and read uh, new articles and stuff. It's still around. So this is, uh, it was a letter to the Radio Times uh, right after uh, this episode aired. It says, uh, Planet of the Spiders proved once again the scope and quality of the popular Doctor Who. All involved must be congratulated on producing a classic story leading excellently to the metamorphosis from John Pertwee's Doctor to Tom Baker's. The storyline was powerful, introducing exciting chase sequences, mysterious ceremonies, and chilling monsters. The acting was first class, particularly John Pertwee's performance when the Doctor faced his greatest fear, the Great One. And of course, the visual images of senior visual effects designer Bernard Wilkie were with wonderful to watch. Doctor Who, like time, cannot stand still. It must always move and change. John Pertwee's Doctor of the Frock Coat and Gadgets is gone, but that character was but one of the facets of this eternal Time Lord, the greatest science fiction character ever created. There is an infinite number of further faces and natures to choose from. Tom Baker must select one and play it to the best of his ability. It is this infinite number of characters that ensures Doctor Who's future, for like time, Doctor Who will go on forever. Signed, Peter Capaldi, Glasgow, Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty yeah. awesome. Uh, the- Peter, Cap- 
Peter Capaldi was a young fan and he, he, he's famous for having uh, written this letter and it's sometimes read back to him on, uh, on chat shows now that he's the doctor. (laughs) (laughs) It it must be uh, having read things I wrote when I was young. Sometimes I cringe a bit at my uh, purple prose. He was, he was something like 10 or 11 years old when he wrote it, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, the thing is, the, well, I think he was a little older than that because um, he's older than I am, and that's how I, old I would have been, um, approximately. But uh, but he, it's it's remarkably well written for someone of that age. I wonder if he had assistance from parents or something. Actually, yeah, he was born in '58, so he would have been, I guess, what about 15, 16, somewhere in there. Yeah, '74. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 16. And uh, very much a nerd. So, uh, kids, you can you can turn out. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can turn out <laughs> but to a be well-spoken a well-spoken nerd. <laughs> yes, a well-spoken, famous uh, nerd, uh, which is great. Um, and as he said, the, uh, the there is a infinite number of further faces and natures to choose from, and uh, apparently his own at one time. So that's great. Yeah, that's uh, cool. So um, I re- I enjoyed this episode. Uh, we mm-hmm. had uh, several companions of the Doctor show up here in in this. Uh, Mike, yeah, Yates. we should probably talk about them. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, go ahead, Jimmy. You before, talk about them. Before, I was going to say. Well, before we do that, I have to ask you, Don. What did you think of Doctor James Bond? <laughs> I <laughs> I thought this was very cool. Um, I have to say, uh, watching the Doctor do his uh, Aikido, what was it Venusian Aikido? Venusian Aikido, and, yeah. and flipping the bad guys all over the place was pretty. Was I was I was laughing out loud when I saw that because I had not seen a Doctor who could do that. And yes, the third Doctor is very much in the mold of James Bond. It was very good. That's that's one of the things that Peter Capaldi's Doctor was known for was being very physical. Uh, compared to the any of the other doctors, really, um, they recently brought a little bit of that back uh, in uh, the final two-parter of Peter Capaldi's run, where they're on the spaceship uh, that's near the black hole, and he uses a little bit of Venusian Aikido, and um, occasionally they'll say Venusian Karate, but most of the time it's Venusian Aikido. And in Nardol, in the new series, says, "Don't you need four arms for that?" Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so that was a nice callback to this um, in terms of the companion. So in this era, uh, the doctor is with unit, uh, which at the time stood for United Nations Integrated Task Force or Intelligence Task Force. And uh, it's a kind of watchdog agency that um, protects Earth from aliens. It's kind of like Torchwood only better and and, uh and so the doctor is their scientific advisor and so over the course of several seasons we've got to know all of these supporting unit characters uh the main one is brigadier general lethbridge stewart um also uh there's uh sergeant benton who uh, is very faithful to the Doctor. And um, then there's this character, Mike Yates, who's returning in this episode. And if you just watch this episode, you won't know his backstory. He was originally a captain with UNIT. And he, in an, in a series, and, and, you know, listeners should just get used to us calling series episodes um, because... It's a native instinct. Uh, Mm -hmm. Technically, yes, we know the word is series, but they're episodes. So um, so in an episode or series called The Green Death, um, Mike Yates fell under the mental domination of a computer called Boss. And um, he was eventually freed from Boss's mental domination, but it really shook him up. Boss tried to get him to kill the doctor and he refused and he was like torn. And this showed him how technology can be very destructive. And so in a subsequent series called Invasion of the Dinosaurs, he actually joined a conspiracy to return the Earth to a pre-technological age through time manipulation and restart society without the evils of modern technology. Mm. This was very shocking, you know, to have one of the doctor's companions uh, do this. And so, in a way, Mike Yates became the first fallen companion. And at the end of that series, um, he um, uh, was allowed to take medical leave and quietly retire from UNIT in shame. 
And so this is the first time we've seen him since then. And he's basically trying to get his act together uh, by spending some time at a Buddhist uh, meditation retreat um, to, you know, cleanse himself spiritually after all the stuff he's been through. So that's kind of Mike Yates's story. Okay. Um, another, another companion that we hear about, but don't meet is, uh, a woman named Joe Grant, mm-hmm. who also worked for unit. She was the doctor's main companion during, uh, much of the unit time. And she left about a season ago to get married. And when she did, the doctor gave her this blue crystal that he had gotten from the planet Metabilis III. One of the recurring motifs in John Pertwee's time was he was always trying to get to the planet Metabilis III, which he said was very blue, it was very beautiful. He really wanted to show it to Joe. Uh, finally, um, when uh, he got to go there, he in, um, uh, I'm blanking on the, I think it was the Green Death, actually. Uh, when he finally got there, we just got little scenes of him encountering really blue, but really dangerous alien life forms with him running around alone on Metabilis 3. And he came back with this crystal, gave it to Joe as a wedding present when she went off to South America and got married. And then she subsequently sent it back in this episode. And now the doctor's new companion is Sarah Jane Smith, who proved to be the most uh, famous companion of the classic period, mm-hmm. so much so that she eventually came back and they gave her the Sarah Jane Adventures spinoff series. Okay. It's a lot of history to, 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 to set the context, but that's good because, yeah. I mean, yeah, this, I mean, this is the part that where we're getting to with Doctor Who. It's been on for 11 seasons at this point. There's context, this history. And mm-hmm. while you can come in and watch it, blind in a, in a sense like i did i didn't watch i went from the previous regeneration to this one and i got a lot out of it and i enjoyed it but getting the story helps uh, yeah well and, and there, this one again, there, you know there, there were a number of seasons um with unit a lot of adventures a lot of episodes with unit and so these are all characters um very, frankly sarah jane smith was the most new ep- yeah. character of the group because mm. all the other ones were old familiar people. Right. And they're really looping in a lot of context in this one, um, more so than what we normally get in a regeneration episode, because the, the you're having all these callbacks and including some visual ones. Like uh, one thing I, I know I wanted to mention is in episode two of this serial, we have this, and I'm sure this struck you, Dom. We have this extended chase sequence <laughs> no kidding. with, um, with John Pertwee and all these vehicles. I mean, he's got this crazy looking who car that flies. Yeah, a- he's got, he's got Bessie, the kind of old fashioned yellow car. He's, a, he's got an auto gyro. Bikes. He's, yeah. Like he's, Sean he's Connery got- and you only live twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He has these huge number of vehicles. And what this is, is, John Pertwee was a vehicle nut. Okay. And and yep. he uh loved doing chases on vehicles. And normally they'd only have, you know, one of those per series, but in this one it's like his last series <laughs> as a yep. present to John, we're going to do this massive chase sequence with a whole well, series of vehicles. Don't forget the, the hovercraft, water yeah. water chase yeah. and I mean <laughs> So let's uh, since we've skipped ahead to this point, we'll go back to the beginning, but I wanted to kind of talk about this then since we So uh the doctor's car, which is this hovercraft, was that a thing? Was was that something that had been uh part <clears> of this it, because hovercraft at this time in the seventies mm-hmm. was like the future, like everything would be hovercraft yeah. in the in 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 years. It's kind of new. His his main vehicle during um during the John Pertwee era was this yellow motor car. It looks like a nineteen twenties motor car or something. Little jalopy, named, yeah, yeah. His name Bessie, and uh, and he had tricked out Bessie in various ways so it could like autopilot drive itself around and it could drive super fast and then stop suddenly without throwing people lurching to their deaths, Um, you know, so they could just speed up the film. Um, And Bessie was the main vehicle, but just like an episode, a series or two before an episode or two before they introduced this who mobile that it looks kind of like a, it's a hovercraft. It looks, it can fly. It looks kind of like a stingray. Um, and the, and he actually drove this thing around in real life 
and at one point like got stopped by a policeman and and so forth and who had no idea what this vehicle was that he's driving <laughs> down the road in England um but uh but it's a fairly recent addition but they were going to get their uh they were going to get use out of it in this episode it was the most epic chase scene ever i think it was land <laughs> it was air it was sea i mean this this chase scene and then the guy disappears at the end like why did he yeah. disappear at the beginning <laughs> It was just, this, yeah, it's just, it was funny. Pure present to John Pertwee. Yes. All right. So let's jump back to the beginning. And I, I, my first question is when at the beginning of uh, John Pertwee's run as the third doctor, the doctor had been exiled to Earth. I'm going to guess mm -hmm. that the exile got lifted at some point uh, in, the, yeah. in those five seasons. In, in the previous season, what happened was he was he would be stuck on Earth basically almost every episode of of a season but then they'd like get him off earth for like one one story um just to give us a little variety and then in the 10th season for the 10th anniversary they had a, a story called the three doctors um where they teamed him up with william hartnell and patrick troughton to save time lord civilization um and as a thank you and all this time the doctor had like been working on the TARDIS to try to get it functioning again so he could escape. And it just does. He, he never was able to sustain that. But then <clears throat> after he and the other doctors saved Time Lord civilization from their founder, who was a guy named Omega, um, after they did that as a thank you, they gave him back his knowledge of the uh, of how temporal mechanics works. And they gave him a new dematerialization circuit. Ah. which looks kind of like a little Christmas ornament that you recently saw in the the masters giving each other right. in the final Peter Capaldi thing. That's the little device that John Pertwee was missing the whole time. His, his dematerialization mm -hmm. circuit for the TARDIS was not working. And uh, so we'd seen that device before. And so they gave him a new one of those. They gave him his knowledge of temporal mechanics back. And so for the last season... But after after the anniversary of season 10, um, he has been able to move okay. around in the TARDIS in time and space. OK, uh, so I don't know that we want to go through everything uh, bit by bit, but Linearly. just observations. Mm -hmm. um, uh, telekinesis right at the beginning. The doctor uh, is is tracking this clairvoyant. I'm not even sure what mm -hmm. the clairvoyant had to do with anything, except, you know, he is a uh, he he. He's sort of a device to activate this crystal that gets mm -hmm. ma providentially mailed to the doctor at the same time they're interviewing this powerful psychic clairvoyant. Um, and the crystal gets activated, which connects to um, the Betabilis spiders and mm -hmm. kills the clairvoyant, which the doctor and the brigadier seem not too concerned about. <laughs> this poor clairvoyant is dead. <laughs> I, I love the bit, the way they introduce the clairvoyant, because the doctor has uh, taken, I think his name is Clegg. Uh, the doctor has taken the brigadier to this, like, I don't know exactly what it is. It's kind of like it, it, in the old days, they would have had music and it would have been a music hall, but it's kind of like a variety performance yeah. place venue. And um, so he's taken him to this nightclub thing. And he really is interested in, in seeing this clairvoyant who the brigadier perceives as a stage magician and the brigadier is totally uninterested in thinking in this stage magician he thinks it's all a fake who cares about this the doctor is fascinated by it and then when the the clairvoyance act ends they bring out a belly dancer and suddenly the brigadier is interested in the doctor couldn't care less <laughs> <laughs> and and they so they bring the the clairvoyant back to unit headquarters where the doctor confronts him and says, aha, your your trick is that you really are a psychic. You're not just a fake. And and he outs the guy as a genuine psychic. And uh, and and then that gets us into the crystal plot. But you're right. He doesn't have much else to do with the story. Uh, we, we also at this point get a really uh, a funny uh, scene where uh, the brigadier recalls a colorful past involving a grateful woman named Doris who gave him a gold watch. <laughs> which I, I thought was uh, pretty grateful. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, also, uh, I just m must note uh, for the record that all telekinesis must be accompanied by spooky music. 
Yeah, of course. Well, that's a given. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so meanwhile, at this Tibetan retreat center, these Tibetan monks have, have come to England to set up a, a monastery and retreat center where you, you mentioned uh, Mike Yates is. Um, and he's got um, Sarah Jane Smith, who is a reporter. He's got her coming um, ostensibly to interview the Tibetan monks, but really because he's discovered this uh, group of, of men... Um, doing this illicit meditation uh, in a basement where they're go- I'm not even sure why he was suspicious of them until something actually happened, which is they're chanting and um, they make a, make a, a spider, a giant, giant spider, spider appear, uh, which then it, latches on to the back of one of the, the, the uh, oh, he had a great name, Lumpton, uh, which is a great British name. Lumpton. Yeah. Oh, oh, and originally, okay. So two things here. First of all, we should we should indicate what size spider we're talking about. Yeah. Um, when we say giant, because people are likely to think you know twenty feet across. Right, right. These things are like you know eighteen inches across. So they're giant compared to earth spiders, but they're not bigger than a human being. Yeah. So they can like grab onto your back mm-hmm. and possess you. For me, a, sp- a spider is- bigger than about three inches is giant. So just so you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Later, we will meet one that's like yes. 20 feet across, yes. but, but not yet. Um, the other thing is Lupton. So behind the scenes, th- oh, uh, there's actually another thing here, too. Um, behind the scenes, um, Lupton was originally meant to be the master. This was going to be the master's final story. And he was going to die. Roger, he he was going to die saving the doctor. Um, And then Roger Delgado, the actor who played the original version of the master, tragically died in a car crash while he was filming a a movie in Turkey and they couldn't do the story. So it got rewritten uh, to have Lupton instead of the master. It also, uh, when Roger Delgado died, uh, John Pertwee decided to move on from the part. And so it got rewritten also to include the doctor's regeneration. But what I had not known before until I was prepping this was, um, uh, Kismet Delgado, Roger Delgado's wife, does the voice of one of the one of the spiders. Mm. And, um, you know, they all have these kind of female voices they've altered to make them spookier. But it I, I hadn't known. It's like, wow, Kismet Delgado. I mean, her husband was meant this was meant to be his swan song. And she's doing the voice of one of the villains. Wow. Um, and I, I was just kind of floored by that. That's wild. Uh, I wonder if they if that was. If it was planned that she was going to do it before he died, or if they had her do it after he I, died, my, my guess is it hadn't been cast at that point for because it's a yeah. you know it's it's not a major face role, right? So, um, so we have yeah we have so this this little group of meditators, these guys who are at this retreat center, ostensibly they're supposed to be there to you know, to be centered and find peace, uh, are looking for power. Uh, somehow they've, they've decided that uh, Tibetan uh, chant with uh, this mandala that they've got on the floor is a way to get power. Um, and Lupton is, uh, is power hungry. And, and they end up tapping into this, this spider consciousness uh, from Metabilis um, because the, the crystal, you know, is activated by the clairvoyant. Um, and so you have like all these these coincidences come together to, to kind of create this the story. Right. Uh, also, by the way, uh, speaking of creating the story, um, there's another behind the scenes here thing that's very interesting. Um, the producer of the show at this time, who also directed this story, is a man named Barry Letts. And uh, he's an interesting guy. You can see lots of interviews with him if you watch the DVDs of different series from this period. But um, he happened to be a Buddhist. And so this um, Buddhist retreat center, just like Roger Delgado gets, um, um, just like John Pertwee gets a kind of a gift in the form of the extended chase sequence, um, Barry Letts kind of gives himself a gift by putting Buddhism in this episode. Mm. And 
And, you know, it, at the time in England, you know, this is just coming out of the 60s. It would have been this very exotic thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I suspect the British audience didn't know a lot about it. And so just to an ordinary British audience at the time, I kind of wonder, could the message come across more like, you know, Buddhism is dangerous because if you do this meditation, <laughs> giant spiders will materialize and possess you. <laughs> um, so I don't know if it came across exactly yeah. the way as intended, but um, it was kind of a kind of a personal thing for Barry Letts to be able to include Buddhism well, in the episode. And I, and I I wonder if it came across kind of comical too, because a lot of the phrases by the uh, the uh, Buddhist leader, the that, meditator, that, oh, mm-hmm. the the guy who was doing the kind of leading the abbey. Um, we're almost like nonsense phrases, you know, like wherever you go, you are there, you know, that kind of thing, you know, Thank you, Buckaroo yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's that kind of, you listen to the phrases and it's like, did he actually say anything that made sense? You know? Right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the, yeah, it's it's not it's it's not supposed to be Tibetan Buddhism that doesn't make sense. That's supposed to be Zen Buddhism. Come on, exactly. guys, get your Buddhism exactly. right. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, and this is also the era in which um, uh, what, Caucasian Westerners uh, play the part of uh, Asians, uh, like the uh, just like in the American westerns, you had uh, Jewish and Italian guys from Brooklyn play Native Americans. Uh, and this, we have uh, a, an Englishman putting on an outrageous accent uh, and pretending to be uh, Tibetan uh, as yeah. the character of Choji, uh, which. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of two characters here um, that and we'll comment on them as we go further into the story. But there's there are two Tibetans in the story or apparent Tibetans. One of them is Kanpo Rinpoche, who's the head of the Lamasari. Right. He's the main llama, and he is a Caucasian actor. He's an old man. He's got the Tibetan garb on, but he doesn't have any yellow face or anything. So right. they're not trying to disguise the fact that he's Caucasian. Right. Um, and in a way, that's not different than things we've – I mean, okay, so like I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Lost Horizon – or read the book. I think it was by James Hudson or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a book uh, about a, a a lamasery in the Himalayas called Shangri La, and it's a very famous novel. Um, originally here in America, you know Camp David, the President's Retreat. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, that was named Shangri La right. after the lamasery in Lost Horizon. And um, and uh, there have been a couple of movies made. Uh, out of Lost Horizon, one of them was a 1970s version that I saw when I was a kid. It was ab- it was a musical. It was absolutely horrible. Um, but <laughs> there's um, I still am tortured by memories of the music in that. But um, there was also a much earlier black and white version, which is actually good and has a very powerful pro peace statement in it. And it turns out um, people in Shangri La live fantastically long like 200 years and shangri-la is in fact run the head llama there is a a catholic belgian missionary Mm -hmm. who came there long ago and has like created this utopian environment that now he would like it to share its message of peace with the world and so i think with the caucasian head llama in this kind of Tibetan context, they may be trying to evoke Lost Horizon that uh, people in the audience sure. would have seen in the theaters, not the crummy 70s version, but the the older, although they may have seen that too, but the older one that was very fondly remembered and that was based on the famous novel. Okay, we'll give that. Plus the fact is, as we find out, that the... the, the, the um, Rinpoche... Kanpo Rinpoche? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. is, is a... Tell, as a time lord you know so yes so the the so it's, we don't expect him once we find that out we don't expect him to be uh asian in that sense uh so yeah where's choji although he will be <laughs> yeah, right right um so uh, i have a note here as a going along um who would have guessed that spiders would be so devious and double crossing? Uh, uh, we have lumped it in the spiders back and forth, double crossing, double crossing. The spiders double cross each other. They they double cross Lupton back and forth. It's a uh, it's just throughout the whole thing. Evil, evil. The base of the message is 
evil is stupid and will always destroy itself. And that, that's essentially yeah. the message. You, you, and you can see how well the master would have worked in this part with all the mutual double crossing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. As we, including a final double cross, allowing him to save the doctor's life. As we will see uh, in two weeks when we review Legopolis, uh, the, which is the the the, uh, the fourth Doctor's regeneration story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that where we see the Master kind of doing that uh, 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 th- that sort of thing. Um, th- there's another trope that we that we encounter in this, which is, is of the um, the uh, I'm trying to. There's a word that they would have used back then that that is no longer uh, acceptable in polite company, but um, there, there's a. Uh, Mentally deficient. It's, I, I I apologize oh, okay. if I'm using the, if I'm using insensitive language, but uh, a mentally deficient fellow named Tommy who is mm-hmm. is he's he's not sort of a handyman. Yeah, and and he just he he kind of is very simple, he's slow, in slow, and uh, and he, you know he's uh, enamored of shiny things, um, hmm. and calls them pretties. Pretties, yes, and he plays key uh, role a key role in all of this. But the funny thing is, is just if only people would listen to Tommy instead of ignoring him. Like, yeah, mm-hmm, like exactly. he, he tries to get Sarah Jane, come see Sarah Jane. No, no, it's not. Yeah, I, I've got more important things to do. No, no, come and look at the bad thing, like the the spider guy thingy. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy eventually uh, will steal the the crystal and hide it, which safeguards it from the the just spiders. It's pretty. Yes. Yeah. Uh, then the crystal Tom- works. Tommy. It's, it's magic on oh, him, ahead. and, and we, yeah, I was going to say that Crystal works its magic on him, and and kind of fixes what's wrong, and makes him intelligent and yeah. well spoken, and all this other stuff. You were going to say it's it, it's a flowers for Algernon thing, um, and Tommy is just an awesome character. I love mm-hmm. the character of Tommy in this. I love him when he's simple. I love him when he's smart. I I just he's a great character. He moves the plot forward. He's an innocent in both forms. Yep. Um, he just has genuinely good motives, and you're right. He's more on to some things than the main than the established characters, <laughs> and they need to listen to this guy. Um, so and it, so Tommy, and, and he actually has in a self sacrificing uh, phase that later mm-hmm. on, as we as we get toward the end of the of the episode, but um, just to kind of do, kind of jump back to the the doctor uh, mentions at one point that he hardwired the coordinates to Metabolus three into the TARDIS now. Jimmy, since you've told me at the beginning of our, our our episode here that the doctor had been meaning to get to Metabolus three so for so long, mm-hmm. that explains why he would have hardwired the coordinates. And I guess that's that was something that I wanted to remark on because I thought that was odd. Yeah, I think the re- uh, the reason they put that in is because the doctor still this is classic who, and so the doctor still doesn't have good control navigationally of the right. TARDIS. And um, so he'll like, in fact, um, at the end of this, he like vanishes for three weeks. And when he comes back, he says, I was lost in the time vortex for that time. Mm -hmm. And um, so he still doesn't have good control of the TARDIS. But apparently, if he hardwires coordinates into the nav system, he can get where he wants to go. But he can't just push the buttons. He's got to do something much more elaborate to ensure that he gets there. Okay. It's not as simple as putting a waypoint in the uh, TARDIS's time and space GPS system. Yeah. Uh, you said that's you call that simple? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Garmin designed the TARDIS's control panel. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> so uh, the, I, I like um, I notice here that the doctor speaks of the TARDIS as if she's alive. Um, and, oh, yeah. And the characters remark on it. Um, is this is this something new uh, that that in John no. Carpenter's time? This goes all the way back to episode one of the unearthly and unearthly child. Oh, I don't um, remember that. When, yeah, when they first find the TARDIS in in the junkyard in Totters Lane, um, Ian Chesterton touches it and notice it's vibrating and says it's almost like it's alive. And periodically, we've had very rarely, but um, but periodically, we've had characters comment about the fact the doctor talks about the TARDIS like she's like she's alive. He calls her she, for example. Mm. Um, and here in this episode, we have it pointed out, you're talking about the TARDIS like it's alive. And he just looks back and kind of coyly says, oh, really? You know, don't I? And I forget the exact quote, but he like acknowledges it, but doesn't engage yep. it. Okay. And and this is setting us up for the fact Eventually, they pay this off in New Who, yep. establishing the TARDIS is, in fact, a living being. Right. 
uh, and then becomes anthropomorphized. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, the the action at this point shifts to Metabilis three. Uh, some people are drawn there by the action of the, uh, the the spiders in the crystal, and others travel in the TARDIS. Um, Sarah Jane Smith follows the Doctor there. They encounter this village of primitive humans who are enslaved two legs yes uh, two legs enslaved by the eight legs the spiders um and yeah don't use that word that word is forbidden yes it is forbidden so don't yes let's <laughs> can't say spider yes don't say spider oh um so <laughs> at one point uh, <laughs> uh there's some action sequences some uh, rebels they're not trusted uh, some of the humans don't trust them others do uh the doctor brings out his venusian judo uh aikido mm -hmm. and uh and then is apparently mortally wounded, which is very interesting. Um, and we think, oh, this is it. This is the regeneration, right? Right. Uh, that's a, a classic uh, uh, misdirection that we get. Uh, and then uh, he sends for this machine to heal him. Do we have we what is this machine? Have we seen this machine before or do we ever see it again? Um, it's not not that I'm aware of. I mean, no, it, it, this is almost classically. This is kind of like <laughs> this is kind of like the last gadget for John Pertwee. I mean, it's kind of his last mm. gasp for having some kind of gadget. Because, like, yeah. like we said, uh, or like Peter Cavaldi said, this is the the gadget doctor. I mean, he has lots of gadgets, right? He's sort of a James Bond with the Q branch. Is is that is that how a mm -hmm. good description? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, or James James Bond with a special coiffure <laughs> yeah. and a velvet smoking jacket. Yes, yeah. I I, I have noticed as we've gone along cape. that the uh, the doctors are getting uh, progressively uh, more uh, um, flamboyant, flamboyant in their costumes, dressed, yeah, crazily mm -hmm. yes. dressed. Uh, so um, yeah, that that trajectory really continues up to about Doctor Six, and then it pulls back. Yes, yes. Well, the uh, mm. there's the uh, celery in the. In the lapel, yeah, uh, in the cricket suit, <laughs> the cricket. and and yeah, but then after that we have Joseph and the amazing Technicolor vomit dream coat. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, wait till we get to Doctor Six. That, that one's yeah. rather elaborate. Yeah. So um, we have uh, some action between the. I don't want to get too much into it because there's a there's a lot of running around and back and forth. Yeah. Um, we find out that the the giant spider, the 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 she who must not be named, or, or whoever they refer to her, the great the one. great one, all hail her name. They all have to say as every time uh, she's mentioned. Um, is I want to actually institute that in my house with my kids, but never mind. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, <laughs> the great one, all all hail his name. Um, they, <laughs> the, we find out that she's in this cave of some sort that has this radiation that no one can survive. I mean that's a and we, you know, key plot point, you know, put, you know, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that yeah. later. Um, she can survive it. Yes, apparently. But apparently nobody else. And and also we get some backstory on why there are humans and giant spiders on this planet. Right. Um, and that's relevant to the radiation because um, uh, this is in the far future um, and humans have develop space travel and come to this planet. And there were originally, apparently some kind of colony ship or something. There were humans and sheep that survived the landing. And so that's why humans are on the planet. Uh, but then like uh, on any spaceship, I guess there were pests that stowed away, including some Terran spiders and the radiation on Metabilis three caused them to mutate over the last 400 years to become giant and intelligent. And and they call themselves the eight legs now. They don't like being reminded of their humble past. So the word spider's forbidden. But the biggest and most intelligent of them all is the great one. And she is the spider who's like 20 feet across. But she's in this radiation cave. Perhaps that's why she's the only one who's that big. Right. Um, is because she's the one who's been most mutated by this radiation um, and why humans and human-like beings, including the doctor, can't go into this cave. So there's, there's something in this whole story that I, I could never figure out, and maybe there is no answer, but like I could never figure out what's the connection between the, the chanting in the monastery and the spiders on Metabilis. Uh, you know, what's, how are they connected and or or is it simply like why was why was the when the crystal gets activated why was it that those guys chanting with that mandala 
made the connection with the spiders. You know what I mean? You could probably use some argument about psychic link and all that, where the crystal mm -hmm. was, you know, had could make that psychic connection, and their chanting was able to do that. And you know, I mean, that's that's the only thing I could think of off the top of my head. Yeah, in my head canon. Yeah. By the way, notice they're using a standard Buddhist chant at this point: Hum Mani Padme Hum. Yes. You know, and uh, which you'll hear in a lot of period stuff. Um, because it's the only Buddhist chant that anybody in the Western media knew. Um, but yeah, it's a psychic crystal. So, and, and, and in fact, there's a callback in the Matt Smith era in the episode Hyde. Matt Smith's doctor uses another metabilis crystal to help amplify a human psychic powers. And so that's part of what's going on here. Okay. But like you know, it's this monastery as opposed to any other monastery where the chanting is going on in the world and that sort of thing. It's, it's just it's it, close. It's the story, you know. It's yeah. It yeah. apparently mm -hmm. it is close because they get back and forth between there and unit very quickly. Um, so uh, back to Earth, uh, the the doctor and Sarah Jane and and uh, I don't think anyone else goes with them. Uh, Finally, we see that the abbot, the we, we, you know, we'd been talking about him all this time. And we, the only monk we'd seen was this Choji. Uh, but finally, we get in to see the abbot. And, 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 and Choji is a younger man. Yes. And he is a British actor using yellow face yes. and affecting a slight accent. Yes. Um, and so finally, we get in to see the abbot uh, and we find out that the abbot is a time lord. He's one of the same race as the doctor. Um, which and he's not just any time lord we've heard about him before um because in previous stories uh in particular in the time monster if i recall correctly um <clears throat> john pertwee's doctor talked about how he when he was a little boy on gallifrey he knew a monk that like lived on a hill behind the family house mm -hmm. and um and this monk gave him advice and so the monk, not the same as the meddling monk, who we haven't seen since William Hartnell's era, but um, some spiritually wise monk on Gallifrey played an important role in the doctor's life when he was a boy. And so we've heard about this guy, but we've never seen him. And it turns out he's Campo Rinpoche. Uh, by the way, Rinpoche is a title for uh, a, a kind of Buddhist spiritual leader. So his name is Campo. And his title is Rinpoche. Okay. So uh, we also get an explanation from the doctor of regeneration, uh, which I don't think we've mm -hmm. ever gotten before. Yeah. First time the word has ever been used. The previous mm -hmm. two times it happened, it was they were sort of one-off events. They didn't have a name. And this is the first time we've taken it and applied a name to it and made it a recurring concept. Okay. Uh, but then we get this this other thing, which is, that Choji is a projection of Kenpo, of the abbot. Mm -hmm. uh, and that when. Tulpa. Uh, and when the abbot regenerates, he, he that Choji is, is the face and body that he will be regenerating into. Uh, yeah, and this is totally weird. And it's the only time that this exact thing happens in a regeneration, except there's an echo of this in Tom Baker's regeneration. Right. And when we do Legopolis, I want to talk about that. Because there's something very much like it's not exactly the same, but it's very much like a Choji Kanpo mm -hmm. situation that happens in Tom Baker's regeneration. So okay. teaser for two weeks from now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the doctor manages to teleport back to the cellar to get in the TARDIS. I don't understand how how that happened, um, uh, but uh, I, I notice one thing though here. We never in this in, in any of these episodes of this series, we never see the inside of the TARDIS. Uh, we don't see the control mm -hmm. room. We don't see anything. Is this something common from this doctor's era or is the, no, the set they, been packed away? I, I assume it's the set's just been packed away because we do see the interior of the TARDIS. In fact, they do some interesting things in other Doc, John Pertwee uh, stories where he's when he's working on the TARDIS, we'll see him in the control room. He even does things like in in one series uh, called Inferno. He takes the control console out of the TARDIS entirely and is like working on it in a garage and activates it and travels between universes without the TARDIS around it. Yeah, and so he's just hanging on, hanging on to the console, hanging on to the table there, and traveling. Yeah, 
which is so. So we've seen yeah. we've seen the interior set. They just apparently don't have it up in this series. Okay, okay. Uh, so the doctor goes uh, to Metabilis and sacrifices himself. He, he gives the crystal to the to the the great one um, because she's going. He knows that will it'll end up destroying her, which is a a common uh, theme. It, it turns out is is uh, the. The doctor kind of basically Villains. says, "You, you, when you get what you want, it may turn out to not be what you needed or desired in the end." Um, yeah, this is classic parental advice. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Be careful yep. what you wish for. Um, yeah, and we should mention exactly what the Great One's plan is. So, the, because of the psychic crystals on Metabolus Three, um, the um, the spiders can make a sort of telepathic matrix out of them that will, if they can complete it, it will allow the Great One to mentally dominate one way or another everybody in the universe. It's going to, like, amp up her psychic powers exponentially to infinity, she says. Right. And so, um, so she, but so she needs this crystal for that. Uh, what the doctor apparently knows, and they, this kind of comes out of nowhere, they don't really set it up. But what the doctor knows is that actually, if they complete this, it will amp up her powers and then burn everything out. Mm-hmm. So she's going to die as a result. And that's why he's willing to give it to her. And he knows. You know, it's kind of funny, yeah. though. It's, you know, one complaint we have with New Who is everything's always this dramatic. You know, there's 50 million people that are going to be affected by this. And, you know, mm-hmm. well, that's not exactly new to New Who because here's, you know, Classic Who. And it's the entire universe will be controlled yeah. by these spiders <laughs> if yeah. this happens. Yes. Not immune to that uh, that that tendency. Um, yeah, well, you get to do it once. You don't get to do it a hundred times. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Not every that's, episode. That's the difference. Yeah. A lot, a lot of classic Who. The episodes are the effects are local. Yeah, in People fact, that when are we directly involved. Yeah, and in, in fact, a couple of regenerations from now, the stakes are where that cause the doctor to regenerate are going to be one person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not a whole universe, just one right. saving one person. Okay. Uh, so we have uh, the doctor's last words as he dies is uh, uh, while there's life Quote from Cicero. Yes. While there's life, there's and blank. But it's also something we, yeah. we uh, as again, uh, it, and it's very interesting how many callbacks there were to this episode from uh, I my mind has blanked on the title Peter of it. Capaldi. The, the last Peter Capaldi uh, the season finale before the, the Christmas episode. Um uh, I'm, I am now just going to page back until I see it because I really want to say it. It is uh, not that one. Peter Capaldi just visually is very reminiscent of of the third doctor. Yes. Yeah. Of all of the classic doctors, he's the one he looks most like. W- World Enough in Time is the, what is the title I was looking for. And yes, oh, there we go. They, made mm-hmm. his, they let his hair grow out to that, to that big quaff that John Pertwee has here. Uh, well, and, mm-hmm. I mean, he had his original outfit had kind of the cape that was very similar yeah. to what per- we would wear and you know, things like that. That's true. Uh, but I thought that was uh, you know interesting that uh, he's he gives the same quote uh, that we get in the end of World Enough in Time. Um, Choji, which, which actually that we should point out, that's not original to Doctor Who, though. That goes back to the Roman uh, orator Cicero. Yes. Where there's life, there's hope. Yep. Um, th- the abbot, uh, Kenpo, has a, he regenerates as well uh, into Choji, uh, mm-hmm. and he, who gives the doctor's regeneration a push. I mean, so we were supposed to yeah. be told, we were told that the doctors would, would not be able to regenerate uh, because of this radiation. Um, uh, but the Choji still manages to give the regeneration a push, and he does regenerate into. Uh, Tom Baker's doctor, uh, the, the, the fourth doctor. And something that's always struck me about that. And this is actually the first moment that I ever saw of Doctor Who. I saw it on the oh. flip side in the episode Robot. But oh, sure. this this regeneration is the first thing I ever saw. So I saw just the tail end of the last few seconds of John Pertwee. Yeah. And then the beginning of Tom Baker when I was a kid. Um, but one of the things that struck me in rewatching this and I've seen rewatched it you know, multiple times, but Tom Baker looks a lot like a younger version of John Pertwee. I mean, they've got the same nose and the same curly, poofy hair. Yep. Um, and he really looks like a younger, just a younger version in a way of John Pertwee. 
it's interesting hmm. that uh, people have pointed out how until Peter Capaldi, the doctors have all sort of gotten younger. Um, mm-hmm. Matt Smith being the youngest, mm-hmm. I think the Sylvester you McCoy. Knew who, yes. Yeah. Well, even that, like apart from Sylvester McCoy, wouldn't that be true? Uh, Colin Baker was older than uh, then, Peter David. Oh, Peter, right, right, yeah. Right. Oh, and oh, and Sylvester McCoy was at least as I mean, he yeah. he doesn't visually look younger than Colin Baker. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, you have so you have William Hartnell, who is visibly the oldest, um, even though physically he was only in his mid fifties. Um, but then uh, some of that was makeup, yep. but then, uh, Patrick Troughton got younger, but then John Pertwee was older than Patrick Troughton. Oh, was he? Interesting. Yeah. Um, Patrick Troughton was like in his forties. Um, and wow. I guess Pertwee was in his late forties, but he'd already gone gray. And then, uh, Tom Baker is younger. Peter Davidson was the youngest. Then Colin Baker was older and Sylvester McCoy was about the same age. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right, that's and of course that got broken with Peter Capaldi in the new Who too. So that's mm-hmm. uh, one interesting. My my final note was uh, interesting to note that the Brigadier somehow remembered the Doctor having a different face. Yeah, well, that's because he met him when he was Patrick Troughton when he was the second Doctor. Oh, and in the, in the Three so, Doctors episode. No, no, no. no uh, the Three Doctors is John Pertwee. Um, he originally uh, was introduced in a series called The Web of Fear, where yeah. London was invaded by these robotic Yeti and mm-hmm. uh, the Great Intelligence, which we later saw again in Matt Smith's era in The Snowmen and in the episode where they're about to go, where they go to Trenzalore and see the giant dead TARDIS. Okay. Um, that's the villain um, in that episode is the Great Intelligence who is in control of the robotic Yeti. And so London had like been locked down because of this Yeti invasion in the underground, in the subway. And uh, that was when UNIT uh, got introduced. Um, Also, there was a Cyberman invasion of -hmm. London, which UNIT was involved in in the Patrick Troughton time. Um, And so uh, uh, he wasn't always a brigadier. He He didn't yet have that rank. But um, but the character Lethbridge Stewart was introduced then. Um, and so he knew Patrick Troughton and that's what he's referring to here, okay. where when the doctor comes back and it's been like three weeks, where is the doctor? He's in Sarah Jane's all worried. Um, that's why, uh, the brigadier says, oh, don't worry. He, he, once he was gone for months and when he came back, he had a new face. Yep. Okay. Okay. That's good. Um, so that's what I get for not having watched everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's time. There's time. We and uh, we will watch everything eventually. So uh, that's that's pretty much it. I mean, um, I I have to. My uh, assessment is I really enjoyed it. Uh, my favorite regeneration mm-hmm. story so far. Um, I I liked I liked John Pertwee's Doctor. I liked his James Bond aesthetic and his his uh, Venusian Aikido. And mm-hmm. I, I liked his style. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed I, I that. I think you would, you would really enjoy going back and watching some of his episodes. Cause he had some, yeah. there's some really good episodes this time. Some of the master episodes, I'm sure mm-hmm. Jimmy would agree were excellent. Oh yeah. Also like Inferno, where we get to see this parallel yes. universe where the, everyone's evil. It's like the mirror, mirror episode of Star yeah. Trek. Ah. You except know, for, the Royal except for in, in that one, the, Brigadier doesn't have a mustache, and he says, "Now no, I see he's why you an, grew that." He's, yeah, um, he doesn't have a mustache or a beard, but he does have an eye patch that makes <laughs> yep. him totally bad. And and like it's a, the, it's a great episode, it really is. He, in in that he's like the he's like this military guy in this fascist government that's taken over England and killed the royal family, Ooh. and that's how bad this universe is. Um, I'll have to so go that find one's... that. I've got that on uh, VCR tape downstairs somewhere. Go find uh-huh. that and watch that again. <laughs> we should definitely in the future do a series uh, like we're doing with Regeneration, do a series on master episodes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. That would be fun. Um, incidentally, a couple. So a couple, I had a couple of thoughts I wanted to share about this. Yes. One, I just liked the visual design of, of mm-hmm. Metabolus 3 because it's very and this doesn't come across on the podcast, obviously, but it's very blue. And so we have this. I mean, it's famous for being this blue planet in a previous episode in um, The Green Death, where he actually visits it. It's explained that, like, it has this blue moon that casts this blue light on the planet at night. And so everything's very blue and we've got these blue crystals. So we have a very distinctive visual design mm-hmm. um, for Metabulus 3, which is nice to have, you know, kind of a driving 
direction for why things look the way they do. It's not just a bunch of random junk that was laying around the BBC prop department. You know, there's been conscious thought put into this and it all visually integrates together nicely. So I like that. Um, the Also, the reason the doctor goes to his regeneration is rather subtle. Um, and it's actually, it actually fits in with the Buddhist theme uh, that, uh, that Barry Letts put into this episode. Um, the reason, because the doctor is back on earth, he's got the crystal. He doesn't have to go to give it to the great one. Now he knows if he does that the great one's going to die, but he, the great one can't control the universe without this crystal. So she's effectively neutralized. And Sarah Jane even asked the doctor, so why did you go? And it's because his guru, and he uses that term to refer to Kanpo Rinpoche, his guru, the monk that he knew as a little boy, tells him the only solution here is to face your fear. He's previously been to this cave, and the, uh, the, the great one told him about the radiation and said, if you come in here, you, we heard this in the uh, trailer, if you come in here, you're going to die, and I need you alive. And she even like telepathically or telekinetically took control of him and humiliated him and marched him around like a toy soldier. So he's been scarred by his previous encounter with this cave, which represented death and a loss of self-control to him. And thus, he's afraid of this cave. And so this is vulnerability on the doctor's part. And Kanpo tells him, for spiritual reasons, he needs to go confront that fear. And that's why he goes, even knowing it's likely to lead to his death. Um, he's willing to do that rather than just keep living with fear. And so the reason he goes to this regeneration is to conquer a spiritual problem. Excellent. Yes. Uh, that's, and it makes sense. I mean, given what we know of the doctor, especially later on, that idea of the doctor losing uh, autonomy and losing control and, and why that would be a fear for the doctor. I mean, it's sort of his prime motivator is to be free to be free of control, to be free of, you know, mm -hmm. the restrictions and rules and, and that sort of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And knowing that he'll regenerate or, well, actually he didn't, Maybe. he didn't know that he would regenerate. He didn't. That's actually interesting. And, and, and that's something we'll see in the future too. There are times where he doesn't know a couple of regenerations from now, we're going to hear him say, it feels different this time. Yeah, I may exactly. not regenerate. That, that preserves some of the dramatic tension, of course, as well. Yeah. Uh, when you know. Of course, we know the series is going to go on, but he doesn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Father Corey, it sounds like you like this uh, episode, too. Oh, I, I really did. You know, again, this is kind of a, you know, a good example of classic who, you know, we, we've, you know, we, you can go, go through and you can find some really stinker episodes in classic who this is not one of them. This is one. And new who. Oh, yeah. Yes. Who, of course. <laughs> I mean, you, we'll, we'll, we're going to talk, talk about, about some stinker episodes coming <laughs> up really episode. fast. <laughs> Next week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, this this is really is a good example. And it is admittedly, it's probably one of the faster paced classic who episodes. But I mean, you have to admit, I mean, the pace moves pretty good. It, they keep the plot for a six parter. Going. Yeah, for six parter. And yeah, there were we talked about there are the scenes of the running and the hiding and all that. But uh, for the most part, th this kept the pace going. Uh, so that was, no, this is definitely an episode I really enjoyed. Um, I just want to bring up one thing. I just did a little quick research here. Yasan Churchman is one of the ladies who did the voice of the spider. Mm -hmm. She also was the voice of Alpha Centauri yes. that came back in uh, Empress of Mars. Oh, wow. At the age of 92. Wow. Yeah. And we'd previously met her twice in the John Pertwee era yep. as Alpha Centauri in the Monster of Peladon and the Bride of Peladon. Curse of Peladon. Uh, there were the two the two Peladon series. Curse. Curse of Peladon. Curse of Peladon. Bride of Peladon is a, a big Finnish spinoff. So just kind of another interesting connection between Classic Who and New Who. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I like this idea. This this idea that uh, Peter Capaldi is really the the John Pertwee Doctor of the New Who. Uh, mm -hmm. That that makes that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, I think that's it. I don't think there's uh, anything left for us to say on that. Uh, what did you think of Planet of the Spiders? 
let us know. Uh, visit us at uh, tridio.com, T-R-I-D-E-O.com, or go to the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Uh, leave us some feedback uh, or send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. If you want to record a, a voicemail, uh, like a, a, use a voice memo app on your phone, maybe, or on your computer, record it, send it to us. We're, we'd love to do a feedback episode where we play your feedback and discuss it. Um, you can find links to all our personal social media and our, uh, in our websites on our show notes at tridio.com. Uh, we'll have links to uh, some places where you might be able to find uh, the Planet of the Spiders if you if you don't have the DVD and you maybe watch it online. Uh, we'll be back next week when we'll be discussing the Ninth Doctor two part story, Aliens of London and World War Three. Uh, we, we watched it so you don't have to, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Come back and enjoy because when we rant about stuff, I find, I feel like that's the the favorite my favorite episodes of uh, Secrets of Doctor Who. So uh, until then, uh, Father Corey Stiga, thank you for joining in the sharing of the secrets of Doctor Who. Always a pleasure. And Jimmy, thank you as well. My pleasure. Once again, I'm Don Bettinelli, and thank you for listening. And remember, while there's life... When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those...